Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. This week, we're going to meet one of the most important figures in English medieval science. Geoffrey Chaucer has gone down in history as the father of English literature, and his Canterbury Tales are celebrated across the globe as the earliest work of fiction in that language. Less well known, but equally important, is his Treatise on the Astrolabe, the first technical manual written in English in which he describes how to make and use these extraordinary instruments. Astrolabes are calculating devices. They were the smartphones of their day, which enabled scholars to make accurate observations of the stars and planets and to calculate a huge range of other things. This book survives in many manuscripts, testament to the demand for information about them in the medieval period and the clarity with which Chaucer presented the information, a kind of Astrolabes for Dummies. Seb Falk, our guide this week, reveals the wonders of scientific discovery in the late medieval England in his absorbing book, The Light Ages, A Journey of Medieval Discovery. In this episode, he takes us back to the early 14th century, to a seminal year in the life of Richard of Wallingford, one of the best-known scholars of his day. Seb Falk is a teacher, historian and broadcaster, and historical consultant. In 2016, he was named a BBC AHRC New Generation Thinker. He teaches medieval history and history of science at Cambridge University, where he is a pro-proctor and fellow of Girton College. I'd like to welcome you to Travels Through Time, Seb. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. So I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today because we're going to be talking about a subject which is very close to my heart, uh, which is, of course, science in the Middle Ages. And um, we're going to be talking about your wonderful book, The Light Ages. I don't think we should waste too much time discussing the whole Dark Age, Light Age issue, because I think we are both firmly agreed that they were very much the Light Ages. There was so much going on and anyone who still thinks of them as the Dark Ages should buy your book and read it immediately. The first thing I wanted to ask you um, actually uh, is a sort of broader question which is about communicating the history of science to a wider audience. I know that you teach at the University of Cambridge and a lot of the Uh, subject matter that you talk about is astronomy especially and I know medicine as well but in this book it's astronomy and it's extremely complicated and I think you explain it really really well and I wondered if you could just talk a bit about how how that works for you how you go about it and also the what the interplay is between your writing and your teaching. Thank you yeah I, I should probably start by saying I used to be a school teacher so I don't take for granted that people are going to be either interested in what I have to tell them or able to understand it instantly. And on top of that, I realise as a writer that if I lose my readers, then the originality or the cleverness of what I have to say is completely irrelevant because if they're not reading the book at all, then uh, I might might as well 
not have written it. So I kind of always started from the point that I had to make the ideas accessible and interesting and enjoyable for readers. But I also didn't want to preach at them. I didn't want to tell them that medieval science was impressive. I wanted them to see it for themselves. I wanted uh, them to kind of understand it for themselves. And that meant showing them enough detail about the content and the complexity of medieval science for them to really try, try and appreciate it and get their head around it. And that means making life a little bit complicated at times. It means getting them to understand some of the difficulties that people in the past had to grapple with as well. So sometimes there are kind of difficult moments, but that's all part of understanding what it was that medieval people were trying to do when they did science. Absolutely. And the, the stars of your book, apart from the monks who we're going to talk about in more detail um, later, but the, the real stars are the instruments and the practicality of actually getting one of these instruments. And, and of course, you would have to go and have it specially made because you couldn't go to a shop and buy an astrolabe. And then actually make, using it to make observations is, is just extraordinary that these people managed it so can you tell us a bit about first of all the making of these instruments and who would have made them how would they have been made um, obviously accuracy was absolutely vital if it was sloppily done and, and then it was just pretty much useless so can you tell us a bit about that yeah so one of the things that I really want to try and get across in in all of my teaching and and uh, writing is the importance of practice in science it's not just about disembodied ideas it's about doing science and how people actually go about not just coming up with new ideas but teaching other people uh, making observations modeling uh, the heavens in the case of astronomy or, or whatever it might be so instruments are absolutely key uh, and instruments in the Middle Ages, like the astrolabe, which is the kind of all-purpose medieval multifunctional tool. I've got one here. You can probably hear it jingling away. A uh, sort of brass disc uh, about uh, 15 to 20 centimetres across um, that, uh, that, that just about could fit in the palm of your hand and can tell you the time and, and tell you where you are and, and map the stars. Um, as to where they were made, uh, they were they were made, as you say, by specialist craftsmen, uh, often people who were already in trades like goldsmithing because they would have access to the materials and the the tools that they would need for this kind of precision technology. But as a as a craftsman, you would also need a certain amount of scientific mathematical understanding to make these things. So often they become a kind of collaborative endeavor between a designer and a craftsman. But in truth, actually, there's a lot we don't know about how these instruments were made, partly because you know, records are, are always partial, but also partly because of the survival of the instruments themselves is, is pretty partial. Uh, you know, there's this paradox of survival that we find always in, in museums, that if something survives, particularly a scientific object, if it survives, it wasn't used up. It wasn't worn down and, and discarded or recycled. Medieval people were really good at recycling because uh, materials were precious. So a metal like brass, if, if an instrument gets broken, the brass is going to be melted down and used for something else. So uh, we have to be a little bit careful when we look at objects that survive and ask how representative they are of the objects that were really used in the Middle Ages. So it can be a little bit problematic, but we look at patrons, people who ordered or bought these devices. We look at designers, we look at craftsmen, and we kind of also try and look at the materials themselves. Uh, because these objects, uh, it's important to say, had lives of their own. 
uh, and I'm not just being metaphorical about that, they are not static. Once they're made, that's not the end of it. Uh, they're often remade, they're often adjusted, uh, bits get lost and replaced. And so these objects themselves have their own kind of complex biographies. I thought it was interesting what you said in your book about, because the, the, the astrolabes, you know, if you go to the Museum of the History of Science in Oxford, the, the, the astrolabes are just so beautiful. I mean, they're, they're really stunning. And you, you, you say in your book that, you know, a lot of the ones that have survived quite possibly were the more ornate and highly decorated ones. And, and that is why they survived, because they had this other, they weren't just useful, they were also beautiful. And I thought that was very, I hadn't sort of thought about that, that maybe there were lots of other astrolabes that were quite plain and more workman-like, and they didn't survive because perhaps they got broken, they were used so much, as you say, and melted down. Yeah, or, or just made out of uh, a piece of paper um, nailed to a piece of wood. Um, or something like that, or a piece of parchment. Uh, and, and then when you start to think about that, actually, you look in quite a lot of surviving medieval books, there are moving parts, there are, there are discs of parchment or paper that have been sewn into the pages and, and with little rotating rules and things. Uh, and then you have to ask interesting theoretical questions like when does a book become an instrument? And what, what constitutes an instrument? Because of course, these um, uh, these astrolabes are designed to represent the heavens. In a way, they're kind of like three-dimensional diagrams with moving parts. Uh, so they they are instruments uh, in the way that a globe is an instrument rather than the way that a telescope is an instrument. Although they do have the capacity to sight the sky and take measurements, they're also kind of models of the heavens. So there could have been loads of wooden ones and th th yeah, that's a absolutely. Cool idea. And and I mean, you know, when Chaucer, Geoffrey Chaucer writes about clever Nicholas in the Miller's Tale, in the Canterbury Tales. And he kind of makes this guy the archetype of a sort of clever but lascivious and a bit devious scholar. He gives him an astrolabe. He says he's got the Almagest, the great book of astronomy by the second century scholar Ptolemy, but he's also got an astrolabe. Uh, and it's kind of an icon of what a scholar would have. So, so you know, they, these are common enough things that Chaucer's re readers would have said, yep, that's, that's what a scholar would have. And of course, Chaucer famously wrote, uh, which is how you, you start your book, uh, a treatise on the astrolabe, how to make it and how to use it. And that is how people would, I, I imagine. Can you talk about that? I think that's, that's also very interesting. If you would wanted to get an astrolabe made for yourself, you would have needed one of these treatises in order to do so and then in order to use it. Yeah, it's the first technical instruction manual in the English language or the first, some people say, treatise on a complex scientific instrument. Uh, there's quite a lot of medical writing in English before this, but um, the first thing of its kind written in English uh, by Geoffrey Chaucer in about 1391. Uh, and it was written or ostensibly addressed to his 10-year-old son, uh, Little Lewis. Uh, there's not much evidence for the existence of Little Lewis apart from this instruction manual that Chaucer wrote, which was based on kind of Latin antecedents. So it's not completely original, but um, it's, it's, it's partial translation, partial original writing. And what Chaucer does really brilliantly is he makes it super accessible. So he kind of writes as if he is writing to a 10-year-old, and perhaps he is indeed writing to his 10-year-old son, Lewis. But there's an element, given how quickly this uh, book 
got passed around and copied in, into, into many dozens of copies, it was clearly always intended for a wider audience. So there's a sense this is astrolabes for dummies, basically. Are you as smart as a 10-year-old? My 10-year-old son can understand this, and he doesn't have any Latin, so I've written it in English for him, uh, but it doesn't matter because the principles are all the same, and here are 45 things you can do with an astrolabe. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's super clearly written. I mean, it can still be followed today, as long as you're prepared to sort of immerse yourself a little bit in Middle English. Uh, so this is Chaucer, the you know great writer of of his period, showing that he can do more than just you know write bawdy tales and and social satire. Well, he must have been able to use an astrolabe very yeah, well. Absolutely. Himself, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a fantastic book, sadly hard to get hold of these days, written by a guy called John North called Chaucer's Universe, which analyzes all of the very many astronomical references uh, in Chaucer's writing. And, and North showed that Chaucer really understood astronomy extraordinarily well. I mean, a lot of the references would have been lost on his readers as well, because, you know, these things would have been read aloud and they would have passed you by very quickly. Uh, but, you know, when he has... For example, uh, Chanticleer, the, the very clever cockerel rooster in, uh, I think it's the nun's priest's tale, isn't it? Who knows instantly uh, what the time is because he knows the date and he knows the sun is in Taurus. And so he sees the angle of the sun in the sky and he sees it's 41 degrees or whatever it is above the horizon. And he says, okay, it's just after nine o'clock. Uh, and so, you know, this is a, a rooster that can tell the time, but Chaucer himself would have had to have that kind of astronomical understanding to be able to put that in his stories. Then let's just talk briefly about actually making observations, because you, you describe really beautifully in your book the monk standing out, you know, outside in the cold, and obviously pretty much all night as well. So let's just take the readers to imagine that they are making some observations. What would that have involved? Well, I mean, it, it depends on what you're observing, right? And at the start of my book, I talk about um, the, this main character, a guy called John Westwick, who was probably a sort of yeoman. So he might have been kind of partially a shepherd or tending to pigs, uh, would, have, would have been out in the cold night. And it's a kind of a question of what you can observe with the naked eye by looking at the changing phenomena of the seasons. So where does the sun rise? The sun doesn't always rise precisely in the east. Sometimes it rises a little bit north of east, sometimes it rises a bit south of east and you can kind of chart the motions in the heavens and if you know what you're doing you can actually tell an awful lot about where you are in the world for example um, and the directions the cardinal directions and and uh, identify certain stars and and tell the time of course by observing these astronomical phenomena but when it comes to using instruments you can do a huge amount of precise uh, observation and calculation using things like astrolabes and equatoria, which are devices to compute the positions of the planets. And they were used as well as uh, for timekeeping and for the calendar, also things like astrology, which was hugely important in the period, as I'm, sh I'm sure we'll get on to talk about. But the amount of observation that was done is kind of uh, questionable in some ways because there's a huge amount that you can do based on purely calculating based on previous observations and tables that were computed so some historians actually question the amount of observation that was really done because observation is quite error prone it's quite easy to make mistakes but once you've got your parameters set up if you just do the computation in tables uh, you can you can calculate quite a lot uh, but, you know, you would certainly have seen astronomers out there, often two of them together holding this instrument, one of them holding it up uh, uh, very carefully and steadily, and the other person looking through it, looking through the sights to, to sight a star and working out the angle of the star above the horizon or working out the angle of the sun above the horizon. Of course, if you're looking at a star 
through the sites of an astrolabe, you can kind of uh, cite it. In other words, you turn the sites on the astrolabe so that uh, the one site, you look through one site to the next site, and then through that second site to the star, and then you can measure the angle on the rim of the astrolabe. But of course, you don't want to do that with the sun because you're going to burn your retina. So what you do is, again, turn the sites so that the shadow of the site closer to the sun falls on the site further from the sun. And then again, you can read the angle of something above the horizon. And that's a simple measurement. It's just measuring the angle of something above the horizon. But that is uh, the basis of all sorts of complex calculations. And of course, still is anybody using a marine sextant today, which uh, I have to say people still do, just in case their GPS breaks down, is all based on the angles above the horizon of the, of the sun or other celestial bodies at different times of day. Uh, and I know that you are a keen sailor yourself. Have you ever used an astrolabe to um, navigate? Yeah, I I made a little video actually with the BBC uh, where I made a mariner's astrolabe, which is a sort of uh, stripped down model that was used at sea from about the 16th century onwards. Uh, and I took it out to sea in a gale. It was a bit disastrous, I have to say, because it was about this time of year, it was mid-January and, and the weather was horrific. We did have some sun, but we also had a lot of wind uh, and it was quite hard to use. But I've also tried out different things like cross staffs um, and of course, modern sextants uh, to, to compare how well they, they can tell you your position. And even with a very basic instrument, it's quite easy to find your position uh, to the nearest, say, half a degree of latitude, which is 30 miles, uh, which, you know, is obviously not great if you're trying to avoid a particular rock, but it's fine if you're trying to get across the Atlantic and end up in roughly the right state of the USA or something like that. 30 miles is, is, is good enough uh, for that kind of thing. I wouldn't say I've had the greatest success, but then to be honest, I didn't try it for very long. I think, you know, you have to think that the navigators of the Middle Ages and early modern period would have been extraordinarily experienced. They would have done this day in, day out, and they wouldn't have had any trouble with the sort of trivial problems that I experienced taking a sighting and so on. Well, I hope we can put some uh, links to to those, but also the video where you explain how to use an astrolabe, because I think it's so, it brings it alive so much, doesn't it? If you can actually see someone using these things rather than just reading about it yeah well it's certainly hard for me to explain this to you on on the radio and even no matter how much i jingle this astrolabe you're not going to get a sense of it so no i think maybe people can go online and, and have a look uh, and and see some pictures and things and, and hopefully go and visit a, a museum where they can see an astrolabe although sadly behind behind glass looking rather two-dimensional these are very three-dimensional tactile objects yeah well, I think um, now would be a good moment uh, for me to ask you the question we ask all of our guests. And I know that you're going to complain a little tiny bit about this, <laughs> but that's fine. Seb, if you could get into a time machine and travel back into the past, which year would you go back to? Today, Violet, I am going to go back to the year 1327. Uh, and can you give us uh, a bit of an overview of what's happening in 1327? So we're going to be in England, aren't we, initially at least? We're going to be mostly in England uh, in the year 1327, uh, in the 14th century. And one of the reasons I picked uh, this is because I want to slightly challenge the notion that the 14th century was particularly calamitous. It's got that name from a brilliant writer, but much less good historian, 
uh, called Barbara Tuchman, who wrote uh, a book uh, called... A Distant Mirror. A Distant Mirror, thank you. It's one of my favourite history books. Oh, it's beautifully written, but it it sadly does kind of perpetuate this idea that the 14th century was awful and dark. Now, of course, we can't get away from the fact that the 14th century does have the outbreak and the peak of Black Death, of the plague, Uh, although it has to be said that the Black Death, you know, plague continued for throughout the following centuries as well. But uh, but there's a lot of other interesting things that happen in the 14th century. And 1327 is long before uh, any of this uh, reaches the shores of, uh, of England, at least, although, you know, it might have been making its way through Central Asia at the time. Uh, but what the period does show us is a real peak of interest in the medieval universities, which are really starting to flourish at this time. 1327 is the year in England that Edward III came to the throne, still a very young man after the deposition and and possible murder of his father, Edward II. It is, as it happens, the year, probably my favourite book of all, albeit not a history book, The Name of the Rose uh, by Umberto Eco uh, is set. Uh, and uh, many of the themes that uh, crop up in that book are real key themes uh, for historians of the Middle Ages. It's an era uh, when astronomers from Europe are taking on board ideas uh, from the Islamic world uh, and making them their own and and putting them to good use. And it is uh, a key year in the life of one particular astronomer, a man who's been described as the greatest astronomer of the English Middle Ages, a man named Richard of Wallingford. Uh, and I, I picked him, and, and this is where you said I might, I might have a little moan, uh, because we know a little bit about him. Uh, and the trouble with picking individual years is that uh, it restricts us to talking about people that we know quite a lot about. Uh, because for people who lived 700 years ago, uh, there's a huge number of people where we, we know they existed, uh, but we can't necessarily pinpoint uh, events in their lives down to particular years, much less particular dates uh, within those years. And particularly in the history of science, I think it's, much, it's very important to try and think of the history of science rather than a kind of parade of great men doing really important things on singular occasions, you know, Archimedes in his bathtub or Galileo pointing his telescope at the moon for the first time, to think of it as kind of incremental improvement, lots of work over lots of time. And that doesn't really lend itself to the celebration of anniversaries, but I think it's a true um, illustration or true picture of Uh, how science really proceeds in in kind of incremental stages and and lots of communication and sharing of ideas and challenging of ideas uh, that that takes place over long periods of time rather than in kind of instantaneous moments. So that's why I sort of have a little whinge. But nonetheless, I would be extremely happy to go back to the year 1327 to test some of my own theories about the period uh, and to witness and experience a little bit of what life was like for the people uh, that I'm interested in at that time. And I think also with the history of science, often you know they went down cul-de-sacs, and you know people suddenly thought, oh, this is right, and oh, actually no, it isn't. And all of those, even the mistakes, all all of it, it all contributes to the wider story. And if you only judge things on the merits of were they eventually successful, it, it just becomes a very bare, rather boring as you say, parade of great men and um, important moments. I'm totally with you. Exactly. If you, if you force any historian of science to pick, you know, one significant year, of course they have to pick the significant year in which something impressive was done. But even the historian of science will be aware that there are lots of men, many important years in which, you know, a great thinker, a really intelligent person came up with this 
highly plausible idea that turned out to be complete rubbish. Mm. And, and those are worthy of, of our discussion because it's a true reflection of how science operates. And it's also a kind of true nuanced and interesting history. But of course, you can't pick that as your one year. So it's, mm. it's a little bit of a bind. It's also very important, I think, to consider the people in, of the past within, within the, the parameters in which they lived rather than imposing modern standards and ideas on them. That's just bad history, isn't it, really? OK, so um, it's 1327 and scene one, where, where are we? So we're going to Oxford, the medieval university, the university city. Uh, a relatively unimportant city until the late 12th century. Um, and indeed, that may be why the university was founded there, uh, or, or possibly because it was a long way away from Lincoln, the centre of the diocese that it sat in. So a, a fair way away from Episcopal control. Not, I have to emphasise, uh, because the church was anti-science or anti-knowledge or anything like that. Those are all myths, but simply because uh, the church liked to control uh, money, like to control the law, like to control what people were getting up to, and often scholars wanted to be a little bit more independent, wanted to do their own thing, uh, as, as they continue to do today, of course, uh, don't want to be uh, subject to government involvement. But I really want to go there because I want to see a sense of what life is like in the medieval university. So in 1327, uh, there are two universities uh, in England, there's uh, Oxford and Cambridge, um, and of course, more uh, across the continent. Um, and these are universities uh, that are where it's possible to study all manner of things, uh, arts and sciences, law and medicine, uh, and of course, theology, and where students have an incredibly rich and interesting life, uh, where they, they do all the things that students do today uh, and more. And, uh, and, and where there are debates, there are discussions, there's drinking, there's fighting, there's hunting, there's gambling, there's all kinds of things going on. But above all, uh, there's a real uh, intellectual climate and energy uh, where they're bringing in ideas from all over the world and all kind of different kinds of influence uh, and sharing them and arguing about them. And that's kind of what I really want to experience. And at this point, do, you, do we have any idea the proportion of uh, students who are monks or in the church in some way and the proportion of students who are laymen or is that not yeah no that's a great question uh, in principle everybody who was a student at the universities had to be in some kind of holy orders but that could often mean you know taking a, a sort of very basic uh um vows and and um uh, and, and being sort of ordained as a cleric but um uh that's I think I think it's probably important to go back a little bit and and, and um, see that in the context of the foundations of the medieval universities, uh, which arose quite organically out of church schools and monasteries. So these were schools that were set up by cathedrals and by monasteries to educate the future leaders, uh, future uh, monks, future bishops and future uh, administrators of those churches. And then uh, though the teachers in those schools started to do a little business for themselves on the side um, and groups of teachers spring up and then maybe lay lords who want to educate their children or who want administrators to, to uh, administer the, the money and the, and the rents and so on on their land, um, send people to these schools to be educated in literacy and numeracy and the important skills that they needed. And so you get increasing numbers of students and teachers. This is in the 12th century, a period of real urbanization, of, of real increased affluence across Europe. And what happens is basically they cluster in cities and then they cause trouble. 
Either there's you know, too many teachers competing with each other or there's too many students causing trouble and they unionize in order to protect themselves against being oppressed or, or being kind of held to account sometimes by local authorities. So uh, you get essentially unions of students and unions of teachers uh, and those unions are the foundations of the university. That's what the word universitas, universitas in Latin means. It means a kind of union or a community. Uh, so they're very sort of, um, organic institutions. Uh, these earliest universities are not sort of founded by a charter, by a king or by a bishop. They're much more organic in their foundations, although of course they later get charters of rights and so on. And so their association with the church is, is quite powerful from the beginning, um, and they are often put under the protection of the church. And then the church, when it starts to realize that it needs more able administrators, it needs to combat heresy uh, in the um, 13th and 14th centuries, uh, realizes that the universities might um, be able to provide an important service for it. So, so then bishops start to sponsor universities. Uh, and an important group of people that start to go to university in this period are friars. So these are not monks. Uh, these are people who live out in the community, who are um, take still vows similar to monks, uh, but are much more devoted to preaching, to teaching, to working with ordinary people than monks who cloister themselves away from society. And those friars make up a large portion of the people that go to university uh, in the 13th century because they uh, are seeing the value of teaching and it's very important also that they're preaching out among the public and, and the universities help them to do that. Uh, but the monks start to um, jump on the bandwagon when they realize uh, that this kind of learning could also be extremely valuable for them, learning in the law as well as theology. Uh, the law, very important, again, of course, for the administration of their considerable estates um, and uh, in medicine, which, of course, is important for everyone. Uh, so the monks also jump on this bandwagon uh, during the, the end of the 13th century and into the 14th century and start educating their monks. So in the period that I'm talking about, uh, it was necessary uh, for uh, monasteries in England to send one in every 20 monks to university. And this caused a lot of problems because it was expensive and the monasteries didn't want to send away their best and brightest students necessarily, uh, although some, some of them saw the advantage of it, um, taking away their valuable books and potentially losing uh, assets of the monastery. So it was always a kind of an interesting balance that the monasteries had to strike. And were they worried that the young monks would have too much fun in the pubs of Oxford and fall off the straight and narrow, as it were? There are some fantastic <laughs> letters from the Abbot of Glastonbury, another extremely wealthy monastery in the southwest of England, uh, back to the guy who was kind of in charge of the students, the prior of students at Gloucester College, which was the uh, college for monks from the south of England, um, saying, what about these two monks? They've got into trouble again, haven't they? And the prior writes back, yep. This, they've, they've been hunting, they've been gambling, they've not been doing their work, they've lost the monastery's precious books, and then the abbot writes back, well, kind of sort them into line, how are they going to get some money, they're going to get some money by teaching, um, and, uh, and trying to kind of bring these, these students back into line, and as I explained in my book, one of them kind of does return to the straight and narrow, and the other one, it seems, never quite made it, but we don't know exactly what happened to him, uh, so it's, uh, it's interesting, and then we have all this interesting uh, argumentation or kind of uh, very vitriolic poetry that's written between monks and friars, uh, essentially just criticizing each other, saying the monks slag off the friars and the friars are rude to the monks. And, and so there's all the bitchiness that we expect with the university. 
that's still there today? I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> um, and which colleges were already founded in 1327? Any of the ones that are there today? Yeah, so, well, Merton College was, was perhaps the most prominent uh, college of Oxford. There are a few colleges around uh, then, and Gloucester College, which I mentioned, kind of morphed into what's now Worcester College, uh, and some of the buildings are the same, and it's on the same site. Um, so some of the university is recognisable. Uh, Merton College, I, I particularly highlight because some of the greatest scholars of this period were there, uh, not necessarily household names, uh, but people, there's a group called the Oxford Calculators or the Merton Calculators by historians, because they were so advanced and uh, important in the history of mathematics, people like Thomas Bradwardine, William Hatesbury, um, who had ideas in physics that anticipated uh, Galileo ideas about, for example, if you're in a car, and you look out the window, at any moment that you look out the window, you see, you take a picture, as you might say, uh, out of the window of your car, and you're in a particular place. Now, when you're accelerating your car, or you're slowing down in your car, we know, because we look at the speedometer, that you're changing your speed, you're going at different speeds. But how might you calculate your mean speed? And how do you think about your speed in terms of instantaneous speed? Because as I say, at any moment in time, kind of you're actually in a in a particular place. Um, it's almost, you know, this is sort of Zeno's paradox. It's almost as if you're not moving at all. Um, so these mathematicians worked out essentially uh, that if you started from a standstill and you moved up to uh, speed X, you could work out your acceleration by essentially halving your final speed and that would give you your mean speed. And these are sort of ideas that seem quite intuitive to us now, seem quite obvious, but actually they require quite significant conceptual leaps, this idea of an instantaneous speed, which seems quite natural to us. And that's very important, of course, to, to later physics. Or ideas about motion and resistance, for example, how you compute motion or how you compute resistance. So they're starting to kind of mathematize physics, albeit in a way that looks still very wordy and philosophical to us today. Uh, but it's very important uh, advances, incremental changes that are made by these uh, by these Merton calculators. So yeah, there's there's important stuff that's going on in this period. Also, very important philosophy as well. Um, wonderful. Well, I think let's um, move on to scene two now. Um, where are we off to? So uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to be in Oxford in 1327 was because one of the men who is most important in the history that I write and and in my book. Uh, was just leaving Oxford in the summer of 1327, uh, having been a student uh, at uh, probably Gloucester College, and his name was Richard of Wallingford. And in the autumn of 1327, in September 1327, he went back to St Albans Abbey, the wealthiest uh, and one of the largest abbeys in England, uh, where he was, to some surprise, elected abbot. Now, there's a very interesting story here because he arrived at St Albans Abbey days before the abbot died and he was not expected there and some people say that he used his astrological skills to predict the abbot's death to ensure that he would show up on time and then he arrived at the abbey and he uh, somehow managed to become one of the electors of the next abbot. I mean it's not that unusual because he uh, was a successful monk. He was a successful Oxford scholar. He had been a monk of St Albans before going off to Oxford to study. So he was seen as an up-and-coming young monk. Very interesting character because he was the son of a blacksmith in Wallingford. 
and he was spotted by the prior of Wallingford Priory, which happened to be a dependent house, a daughter house of the Abbey of St Albans, uh, who spotted him at a very young age and said, oh, you're going to be a success. We're going to send you off to university and train you up. So he was always an up-and-coming monk, but he wasn't expected necessarily to become abbot so quickly. In 1327, he was 35, so in, in middle age, uh, but still relatively young. And he was chosen on the day of the election of the abbot. Somehow he managed to get his way into preaching in the abbey church. And he preached on the text of the story of David and Goliath, where the Israelites say, pick a man from among you. I think possibly even Goliath says, pick a man from among you, pick the most worthy man. And so Richard of Wallingford here then is presenting himself as, as not as Goliath, obviously, as David, uh, ready, an underdog, ready to fight the fight uh, on behalf of the monks of St Albans. So this is him in September 1327 at St Albans um, becoming appointed abbot. But I'm going to cheat a little bit and I want to follow him in this second scene from St Albans to Avignon, where the Pope is based at this time, for his confirmation by the Pope. And he would have certainly passed by London. And I'd love to have a look at London in 1327, where Edward III has just become king, where uh, Philippa of Hainault, his uh, wife-to-be, has just arrived in England uh, in preparation for their marriage, having been engaged uh, for some years. Uh, he was, Edward III was 15, uh, when they got married. Uh, I think she was a, a, about the same age, possibly a little bit younger. Um, and they had been engaged uh, since he was 12. And, uh, and I'd love to see the city of London, which was a, a day or two, probably a day's ride uh, from St Albans, uh, and where the abbots of St Albans had a residence because they were powerful magnates. They wanted to be at the centre of things. They had an office in town, basically, a base in the city of London where they, they administered their lands and they sold uh, their, their produce to, to traders coming up the Thames. I would love to see that. And I would love to go to Avignon and see Richard's confirmation by the Pope, which was a quite problematic uh, episode, uh, but also where he almost certainly caught leprosy, which ultimately killed him uh, eight years later. And did everyone who had been elected an abbot have to go to, I mean, at that point it was Avignon, but presumably it was sometimes, well, you know, normally it was Rome. Yes, in principle, uh, you had to go and, uh, have your appointment confirmed by the Pope. Uh, and, and in a way, this was a kind of opportunity for the Pope to assert his dominance and his control and often get some money out of you. And, uh, and, and, and again, a, a promise or a confirmation that you would pay what was due uh, to the papacy, you would pay your tithes and so on. Uh, so this was kind of an important part of the process, but of course it wasn't always done. Um, but Richard of Wallingford was the kind of guy who wanted to do things the right way. So he, um, he, he went down there. Uh, Avignon is a fascinating place because as I say, in this period, uh, the popes are based there largely because they are under the control of the King of France. Uh, so after a period of considerable uncertainty in, uh, in, in the status of Rome and in the strength of the papacy, uh, they've been taken under the wing of the, of the King of France uh, and they're sort of rebuilding their reputation at that point. But also at this moment, um, there's a really interesting debate happening between uh, Pope John, John the 22nd, isn't it? And 
and the Franciscans, the friars who I've already mentioned, who were preaching apostolic poverty. In other words, they were saying uh, that uh, Jesus and the apostles uh, were, were poor and had no property. And this, of course, was extremely contentious and problematic for the church, which had an awful lot of property. Uh, and so the Pope didn't know exactly what to do with this because the Franciscans were extremely popular, extremely influential, and they'd brought a lot of people into the church, but equally they were quite subversive. And, uh, and, and this raises all sorts of interesting issues, issues which um, I, I should remind readers are addressed beautifully and entertainingly in that book, The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. Mm. It was always a bit of a, an issue, wasn't it, for the church, the whole poverty vow? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's problematic for sure. They never know quite what to do with that. Hi there, it's Peter here. UnseenHistories.com is now three months old and already it is packed full of enticing, illuminating and excellently presented historical material. If you give the site a visit today, you'll see many beautifully illustrated excerpts of books that we've featured on Travels Through Time. There's excerpts from Malcolm Gaskell's Ruin of All Witches, Nigel Pickford's Samuel Pepys and the Strange Wrecking of the Gloucester and Gary Shaw's Egyptian mythology, along with many others as well. For those of you who like maps, you might want to check out the utterly compelling series of pieces on the Battle of Fredericksburg in 1862. That was a crucial moment in the American Civil War, along with a range of fabulously colourised images from Jordan Lloyd. It really is history for our times. UnseenHistories.com well, I think I'd like to ask you to take us to your third and final scene now. Um, we're going back to St Albans with Richard of Wallingford um, and tell us what's happening. So we're now at the very end of 1327, possibly pushing into 1328, if I'm allowed to yeah, do that. Yeah. Well, actually, to be honest, we could do the year starting at the 1st of March, which was the, mm. the common astronomical year, which makes calculating leap years much simpler. Uh, so that's the thing we could do. Or indeed, we could do the English, later medieval English version of starting on Lady Day on the 25th of March, uh, which, of course, is why the tax year now today starts uh, on the, what is it, the 6th of April, uh, because it moved from the Lady Day of the 25th of March, and then they added 10 days for for when the Gregorian calendar came in and it took us to the 5th of April and then there was a bit more tweaking in subsequent years uh, and then that made it end up on the 6th of April. So I've always wondered that. I've always thought how it's so annoying when you're trying to work out your taxes for a, a year. The 25th of March was the uh, conception of Jesus. It's the Annunciation, the Feast of the Annunciation. It's nine months before Christmas Day, of course. Uh, so it's a very important feast in the church uh, and for many people, the start of the, of the year in those terms. Richard comes back to to England in the beginning of 1328, probably bearing the leprosy that is later to kill him, although, um, you know, we don't know how soon he showed symptoms. What's really interesting, though, about that is that a lot of people say, well, lepers, they were outcasts, but Richard was kept in the monastery. He stayed in the monastery. There's no sense that he was an outcast. And for a lot of people, actually, leprosy could have been seen as a blessing, weirdly, because it was a kind of earthly purgatory. It was a suffering that you would undergo for a clearly an extremely limited amount of time on earth, which would be horrible, but which would excuse you for that later suffering that you might have to go through in purgatory. So that's kind of an interesting uh, point of view that some people have. But anyway, by the by, Richard comes back, starts 
uh, throwing himself around in St Albans. So he's abbot of St Albans. The abbey has been in a terrible state for a long time, despite its considerable wealth. The buildings have been allowed to fall down. In 1323, a huge part of the nave fell down in the middle of a service. In fact, if you go to St Albans Cathedral today, you can see that on the right-hand side as you look east down the nave in what's now St Albans Cathedral. You can see different shapes of archway where they rebuilt it uh, in the mid-14th century. But what was scandalous uh, in the time was that it had happened four years earlier and they had got nowhere near rebuilding it. So Richard comes in and says, what the hell is going on? And starts building a clock, which might be a bit unexpected. And Edward III shows up, young King Edward III, as I say, he was just 15 uh, when he came to the throne, but rapidly started asserting himself and becoming the great king that he turned into. Of course, Edward III was on the throne for 50 years. So, uh, you know, he became a really great king, prosecuted the Hundred Years' War and, and, and so on. Um, he shows up at St Albans, which is a monastery that has had considerable royal patronage over the years, and says, what the hell are you doing? Why are you not rebuilding these walls? Why are you spending all your energy rebuilding this clock? Or not rebuilding, building this amazing clock. And Richard of Wallingford says, oh, any abbot can rebuild the walls, but only I can make this clock. And the chronicler says, and, uh, and he said this with all due respect, but he was right. Before uh, I, I mention what was so special about this clock, I should just say Richard was very energetic in putting the state of the abbey onto an even keel. So he, um, he put the finances into extremely good order and he sorted out a lot of the rent that wasn't coming in and he essentially put the townspeople in their place because there was a lot of uh, muttering among the townspeople about why they should be paying rent to the abbey and why they should be paying to use the abbey's mills and all the rest of it. And he uh, uh, essentially forced the townspeople of St Albans to stop using their own mills uh, and to use abbey mills instead and to pay pay rent for that. And he took all of their millstones and he used their millstones to pave uh, the cloisters in the abbey. Uh, and then in 1381, when the Peasants' Revolt came around, so 50 years later, the townspeople broke into the abbey and they picked up all of the millstones, which clearly uh, they knew about from, had been passed down the generations as a story of uh, the Abbey's oppression, and they smashed them all. Uh, so, uh, so the townspeople got their own back long after Richard's death. Anyway, so he was an abbot who was not afraid of a fight, who was not afraid to throw his weight around legally, but he was also an incredible scholar. And he devised and built this astronomical clock. Now, what was so special about this astronomical clock well, it told the time in three different ways. So it told, it told the time that we know today, the, the equal hours, mean time, as in Greenwich mean time. It told uh, the, the time in the traditional unequal hours or the canonical hours, uh, which always have 12 hours from sunrise to sunset and another 12 hours from sunset to the following sunrise. So they're called seasonal hours, as you can imagine. Uh, in the summer, the daylight hours, the hours from sunrise to sunset, are extremely long. And in the winter, those daylight hours are extremely short. And that's very useful for a culture which lives by daylight, uh, where there's much more to do in the summer uh, and where uh, you, you kind of break up your, your time uh, in those terms. So that's very useful. Uh, so this clock struck the equal hours, the mean hours, and it had an indicator uh, for the unequal hours on a kind of astrolabe face for the clock. And also, it showed something that clocks even today rarely show, the true time, not mean time, but true time. 
Uh, mean, of course, means average. So the time we use today is an average time. But actually, astronomers will tell you, the days are not all exactly 24 hours in length. Because of the tilt of the Earth's axis and the fact that we go around the sun in an ellipse, the days vary in length by up to about 30 seconds each, which can accumulate uh, across a year to a difference in time of about 15 minutes. So actually, that can make a significant difference. And astronomers in the Middle Ages, although of course they didn't know that the Earth goes around the sun, still less that it goes around as an ellipse, did know and had observed the difference in the length of the day. Uh, and so Richard of Wallingford included on his clock an indicator for the true time. So that's a, an, a, an indication of how advanced this thing was. And it was seen to be really a marvel of, uh, of, of scientific expertise and engineering skill, uh, which has never really been fully reconstructed because it's just so complex and, 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 and various people over the years have speculated about how he went about it. Uh, but it could also do things, which we don't know exactly how it did them, of, of showing the positions of the planets, of showing the tide or the height of flood tide at London Bridge, and, uh, and various other things like that. So it was really not just a device for telling the time, but it was a kind of model of the heavens. So for some people, it would have been seen as a kind of evidence of God's marvellous design. So it's not just about uh, getting a function, about finding out something. It's also about demonstrating the universe. And do we have any idea where on earth he got the knowledge? I mean, what, what were there other clocks? I mean, this was a very, very early moment in the, the development of mechanical clocks. I mean, there'd been water clocks and, and that kind of thing for um, several centuries. That's ago. right. Yeah. I mean, to, to cut it short, there's, there's a lot of different influences on this. So the earliest mechanical clocks that we see were coming in... Uh, almost always in, in churches, because they were the people that really needed to know what time it was so that they could know when to pray and so on, uh, coming in from the end of the 13th century. But of course, those are quite simple uh, devices that simply strike the hour. They often don't even have faces because you don't need faces. You just need something to tell you when the hour is. Nobody needs to know when the minutes are either at this point. And as I say, those are coming in from the end of the 13th century, uh, but none of them survived today because, as I said, medieval people were very good at recycling. So they often got melted down and uh, and uh, reused. The different parts got reused when they got worn out or, um, or when they were replaced. But the ideas for all this come uh, from all over the place, from astronomy, from ancient Greece, but also ideas uh, from the Islamic world uh, of modeling the paths of the planets and, um, and, and the precise lengths of the solar year and the lunar month. Uh, and astronomical data uh, also from Spain, which was a, a real center of astronomy in this period. So Richard of Wallingford is getting his ideas from all over, but he's also, of course, bringing in his own personal expertise as the son of a blacksmith uh, to make this clock really work. The, the clock itself um, was probably destroyed at the dissolution of the monasteries at the end of the 1530s. Uh, so it doesn't survive, although we have some descriptions of it and we have the kind of manual that Richard wrote probably so that it could be well-maintained by his successors. We, we don't know exactly what it looked like and how it was put together. Uh, and various people have tried to build replicas over the years. And many of them have kind of struggled uh, to understand how on the basis of what is understood to be 14th century technology in terms of metalwork and greasing and, and so on, this clock could possibly work at the size at which it was supposed to be if it was kind of high up in the north uh, south transept of the of the Abbey church so he clearly used some really impressive uh, blacksmithing and engineering skills uh, which we're still not entirely sure about 
And do you think the reason that, you know, this was one of the first things he did when he became abbot was because he wanted to start using it? And, and you know, he wanted to start say, making observations and using the clock as a way of, of doing that? Uh, yeah, possibly. I mean, I think it's it's something that he's learned about in Oxford. He's putting his his energies to good use. To be honest, we don't know exactly. It, it, the, the, the sources suggest that he started work on this on this straight away but we don't you know we don't have quite as no. much evidence as we would like john north his biographer who i already mentioned as a as a scholar of chaucer as well speculated that uh, richard of wallingford may even have mentioned the possibility of this clock as an election bribe to the monks to get them to to vote him in as uh, as abbot and again that's a bit of speculation but it's a possibility uh, but certainly that was kind of what rich that's what you got with richard of wallingford right that's what the monks get they get a scholar and he has this incredible legacy of scholarship as well so for for decades centuries after his death people uh, especially monks in the abbey are copying his works are studying his works are commenting glossing editing them uh, and trying to perpetuate his legacy not only as a kind of great former abbot but as uh you know a leading light in the science of of the earlier eras such a shame that it doesn't survive the the dissolution of the monastery's got has got a lot to answer it really does it really does it's very sad i think i just want to ask you the last final question now which is um if you could have taken something and I don't think you're going to say the clock, but that would be an obvious choice. Um, if you could have taken something from any of these scenes, what what would it be? Uh, yeah, I mean, the clock would be great. And and uh, to be honest, I'd just be happy seeing the clock and getting an understanding of how it worked and precisely what was and wasn't on it. Because some of that stuff I said about the planets and the tides, we have in written accounts of people later. And did they really understand it? I'm not sure. So I'd love to see the clock, but it wouldn't fit anywhere in my house. So I can't take that. What I would like is Richard of Wallingford's Albion, which was probably the most advanced astronomical instrument of the Middle Ages, and I haven't even had time to talk about, but he devised it in Oxford when he was a student there at that period that I'm talking about, where there are those monks drinking and hunting and fighting. And it is a device that to do anything that an astronomer or mathematician wants to do. And I know that this was made because in a later manuscript, which survives at Corpus Christi College, Oxford, there's a monk in, in St. Albans who wrote in the margin, the size of the abbot's Albion as being 12 inches in diameter, about 30 centimetres. And so... So on the side of a manuscript, some he wrote... Yeah, well, it's a copy of the Albion text that's in the in the college <clears throat> library. And, um, and Richard of Wallingford says how large this thing should be. And somebody's written, well, the abbot's one isn't that big. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so it's quite interesting, a little bit of sort of clarification shall we say politely yeah richard of wallingford's own albion was there in the four, in the later 14th century when this monk was writing and of course now it's long since lost and i would love to have that and i you know might be tempted to to donate it to a museum but i might also be tempted to keep it in my own house and take it out every now and then if i could afford the insurance and uh, and polish it and look at it and imagine myself like richard of wallingford gazing up at the stars and taking measurements and making calculations. Has anybody tried to make a reconstruction of it? 
did, did he write a nice, this is how you make an yes, Albion? Yes, the manual, manual for the Albion is extraordinarily clear and complete and survives in, in several copies. Um, there is one that you can see in a, an observatory museum in Rome, not a particularly frequented museum, slightly outside of the centre of Rome. The Museo Astronomico e Copernicano, so the Astronomical oh. and Copernican Museum. And it's a sort of, it's part of the observatory, so it's on a place called Monte Mario, outside yeah. which i guess is one of the hills of rome yeah um and it's sort of outside it's not right outside rome you know it's kind of in a suburb one might say um and i went i went to have a look at it there it is sort of nominally open to the public but i think by appointment you know it's one of these kind of you could just stroll up but you've got to get through a gate with a gate post and a and a guard yeah. and so on well i'm my next book is about observatories so i will definitely all right try and go and have a look it. yeah they've got a lovely collection actually sadly not um i think they're making more efforts it's, it's you know, everything, all of my references are pre-pandemic. So I've no idea. Last time I was in Rome was in 2017. So it's almost five years ago now. Uh, so it might have changed quite a lot. But mm. the uh, the custodian was extremely generous to me. And the that replica was, I wouldn't even call it a replica. It's almost sort of original, as you might say, made in, in probably the end of the 15th century. So around about 1500, towards 1500. So a little bit later, which was made according to a slightly modified design uh, by a German scholar called John of Gmunden. And that survives. I, other people, I think, have tried to make replicas, but it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do because it's such an advanced instrument. So it takes a huge amount of work. So the kind of people that make replicas and might go in for an astrolabe might sort of slightly balk at the possibility of making an Albion, not because it can't be done, but just because it's an awful lot of work. Uh, so, uh, you know, maybe I'll get onto that. I have made a few replicas in my time, but I'm not sure that I'm quite yet up to the challenge of replicating uh, the abbot's albion so instead i think i shall bring it back in my time machine if that's okay i think that's a great choice and then you know maybe people would find out about it. i think we should know about this this kind of thing it's it's shocking that so little is known thank you very much seb it's been uh, a joy thank you thank you so much for having me that was me violet muller talking to seb falk about his wonderful book the light ages a medieval journey of discovery which is out now in paperback Check out our website, tttpodcast.com, to see some lovely astrolabes. And if you'd like to see a video of Seb explaining how to use an astrolabe, visit www.sebfalk.com slash media. Until next time, thanks for listening. Goodbye.